Why don't you stand on your feet? We're going to get ready to read and honor God's word together. We're in the midst of a series called The Great Awakening. Say it with me. The Great Awakening. We're going through the book of Acts. We are dialoguing on this incredible awakening, revival, and move of God in the book of Acts. We began the series talking about moves that God has done in modern history, echoing the refrain that if he did it before, he can do it again. Bert and Linda, man, it's good to see you guys. Love you both very much. Sorry, there's the ADD. Uh, last week, how many of you here were Pastor Robbie's sermon last week or you watched it online? Fantastic. He talked about the devotion of awakening, a commitment in a deep and significant way to God and the people of God. If you missed it, you can check it out on our YouTube or our podcast. This week, I want to talk about the message of this great awakening, the absolutely amazing, incredible, and mind-blowing good news called the gospel. Turn your neighbor and say, the gospel, the gospel. It means good news. Let me talk backstory. We'll jump in up to this point in our story, or as I tell my son, Liam, when we last left our heroes, Jesus had told these disciples, hey, listen, I got an incredible mission, Jerusalem, where they were at, Judea, Sumeria, to the ends of the earth, go make disciples. They were pumped. He said, but wait for what? The Holy Spirit, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. They listened to Jesus and Jesus don't lie. Come on, somebody. They waited in the upper room and sure enough, they got filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. They had what appeared to be tongues of fire that popped up on their heads. And if, it, if that wasn't crazy enough, they walked out into the town square and began speaking languages that they did not know. It was absolutely supernatural. There were Jewish people that would gather for all around the known world for the feast of Passover, soon to be the feast of Shavuot. And so they came to the only conclusion that apparently they could come to. These guys must be drunk. Not quite sure how they connected those dots, but Peter stands up and in the first recorded sermon of this great awakening, he says this. We'll pick up in verse 22. If you're ready, say, let's do this. He says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Now, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Somebody say, ouch. He said, but God raised him from the dead. Come on freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Even David, the psalmist said, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your holy one see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life and will fill me with joy in your presence. That's a promise, by the way. In his presence, fullness of joy. Do it today, Lord. He said, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and that his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants in his throne. Translation, David said this, but David's dead. It's not about David. Who is it about? Any guesses? Come on. Always the right answer in church. Jesus he says, seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay, but God has raised this Jesus to life. Say it with me. God has raised this Jesus to life. 
And we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And here's the last verse. Therefore, let all Israel be assured. I'll say it like a prophetic word. Therefore, let all of South Florida be assured. This God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Let's pray. Jesus, this is true. Many of us in this room, many of us watching online, we, we believe it to be true, but it's still trickling down from our head into our hearts. Do that this morning. Many of us in this room are watching online. We're not quite sure yet if it's true. Would you convict and convince us by the power of your spirit and would your kindness lead us to regeneration and transformation and repentance? Holy Spirit, have your way. And if you agree, say amen. amen. Give your neighbor a high five. You can find your seat or an air high five. I like that. Some of y'all getting creative with it. I'm not sure if you've experienced this thing called the internet before, um, but uh, in the world of the internet these days, I have come across several articles dealing with a similar topic with different titles, largely the death or proposed death of evangelicism. Anybody read this, seen this, witnessed, you know, this is kind of floating around. And so I, I was intrigued because it got me thinking about this idea. As a follower of Jesus first and as a preacher of the gospel second, I'm like, well, what exactly are they meaning by this idea, the death of evangelicism? Now, if you, if you go to, kind of go to the root of this word evangelicism or, the, or evangelical, it actually comes from the Greek word evangel. This Greek word evangel at its core is where we get the term gospel or good news. I was like, well, this is interesting. And as I began to read a few of these articles, I noticed that what some of the articles are saying when they talk about the death of evangelicism is actually an ending of, of what has come to be a very mean-spirited, um, sort of co-opted, antithetical to the person and way of Jesus' message, in which case I'm like, if that's what you're talking about, amen, let it die. But I became concerned because some of the articles were not speaking to, to some uh, sort of weird variant that is not actually the gospel of Jesus, I became concerned because if I said, if you're just talking about some, some mean-spirited, uh, religious, dogmatic thing, then let it die. But if what you're talking about is the evangel of evangelical, of evangelicism, if what you're talking about is the evangel, then friends, if we follow Jesus and if we believe the Bible, that is not an option to die. Amen? It's the good news. And as we talk about this idea that, by the way, is becoming more than just a great theory, we are watching sparks of awakening happen all over the place. God is healing people by his power. People are coming to know the Lord by his power. God is giving prophetic words. We talked about eager, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. That's happening. All these things are happening. But if we want to press in to a book of Acts reality in the 21st century, to a book of Acts awakening then it, we must dig deeper into this evangel, into this gospel. Why? Because it is the good news message of the awakening. It's vital. It's essential. Paul said it like this in Romans 1.16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the what? 
of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or to the nations. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. Paul said, I preach, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Jesus said in Matthew 4 that he came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. In the book of Acts, the apostles and the early disciples, guess what they preached? The gospel. It is the message of this great awakening, and we will not see great awakening unless we are thoroughly steeped in embodying and proclaiming the gospel. So what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. Let's dive in. We're going to hit it in many facets here this morning. I want to look at the gospel from all different angles. Man, I love to lead so much. I just left. I see your parents say I got distracted again. So many people I love here. All right, point number one before I get distracted some more. The who of the gospel. Everybody say the who. The who, not from Whoville. Dad jokes. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. If you remember, we talked about the scene and the crowd that is gathered here at this spark, at this beginning of the Great Awakening. It says in Acts 2, verse 5, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. Everybody say devout. You know what that means? It means they were, they were all in. They were fully committed. They were devout Jews from every nation under heaven. A few weeks ago, we hit on this every nation under heaven. We talked about how God's family, God's vision is diversity, right? It's not a soup with indistinguishable parts. It's a salad where every ingredient is uniquely beautiful and delicious and brings the whole thing together. We talked about the every nation under heaven part a few weeks ago. This morning, I was struck all week long by this word devout. We know it, we say it, those of us who have been around church for any period of time, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God, for who? For everybody. But often what I think we really mean by that is for irreligious people. Man, they need the gospel. What we find here in the text in Acts chapter two is this first sermon preached in the beginning of this great awakening is preached to who? Devout religious people. Who needs the gospel? Turn to your neighbor and say, you do. <laughs> I do. If you're watching online, you do. It's not just the gospel is for everybody, right? We're like, amen. But it, we find here in the text, the gospel is for everybody, especially for those who are religious and even devout. It's not just for irreligious people. It's for devout people. Often we, we sort of find ourselves in this dichotomy that is intellectually uh, sort of coherent. It makes sense, but it's not biblical. We sort of uh, create two different categories. We, we have good people in our minds and, and, and bad people. And maybe you, you, you think like this, and so I want to unpack this biblically. Maybe you're like, you know, Pastor John, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a relatively good person. And, and, and you know, oh man, that, that neighbor, my boss, whew, don't get me started. They are a bad person. And we think in this framework of good people and bad people. Oftentimes I have people come and talk to me and you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. So I get to feel these conversations I'm like, well, Pastor John, I mean, you need to, I know about Jesus and you're, you're a Jesus guy, but I have a roommate who's a Buddhist or I have a roommate who's a Hindu and man, they are better than most Christians. You know anybody like that? I'm like, it's true. 
Have you met a Christian? They're punks. I'm, I'm, a, I'm one of them, right? You're like, man. And, and so we, we, we have this idea of, man, how, how could this all be true? Because there, you know, there, there, there's so many good religious people that, well, let's, let's take Mormons. You have a friend who's a Mormon. You're like, man, they're more moral than almost any Christian I know. And maybe you have a friend who's a Muslim and you're like, man, they're, they're more devoted. They, they, know the, they know the Quran backwards and forwards. And most of my friends know a few Bible verses. Like, man, there's, there's so much genuine, good, wholehearted, religious, devout people. I just don't understand how this could work. And it's because we don't have the same schema as God. Because God, when we talk about good, let's be circumspect. What we are referencing is what we can see. How many of you know what people see is not all there is, right? The Bible talks about this. God doesn't judge. It's, it's encouraging and sort of a, a, a appropriately humbling at the same time. It says, man, humans look at the outward appearance. God looks at what? The heart. So when it comes to good and bad people, it's like, well, actually, God is dealing on a holistic level, including our thoughts and intentions. And in that way, nobody gets a passing grade. Scriptures tell us that eternal life, this is the gospel, that eternal life is not for those who are good enough. Because when you boil us down to our core, Scripture says there's no one who's good, not even one. It's even the good things that we do, and, and we realize this about ourselves, that we've got mixed motives, and it's, all, it's not entirely altruistic. The gospel and eternal life is not those for, for those who are good enough, for, but for those who have humbled themselves and invited Jesus in. This is why the gospel is called evangel or good news. It's not called good advice. Good advice is what religion tells us. Well, you need to do X, Y, and Z, and then if you can do these things to a certain degree, and if you have enough proficiency in your religious system, then you'll be okay. The problem is we stink at that. No one can do that consistently, which why the gospel is not just good advice, it is good news. Here's why. Because humans, like you and I, I'm assuming, Never know these days. We have a tendency to vastly overestimate either our own goodness or our own badness. This week I came across another article that, that really broke my heart. It was of a clergy member who had basically had declared upon him that thousands of baptisms that he had done over the course of his entire ministerial career were um, inauthentic and now void. They, they said that they were now invalid baptisms. And their reasoning and their rationale was because in his little baptismal deal, he used the wrong uh, language. He used the wrong formula. He did it in the name of Jesus. So I'm like, okay, that's kind of the deal. But, but he said, instead of saying I, I, he said we, or it was something like that. And they, they sort of did like some spiritual gymnastics. And then, and, and then they had quotes from this poor guy. I'm like, bless his heart. And they're like, here's, here's the problem with, with what happened. And he, and he was just like, you know, I just, I just love God and I love people so much and I was trying my best. And like, yeah, now these thousands of people are gonna have to go back through all of their different aspects of what they were doing and they're gonna have to go. And I'm like, what, what, oh, and I felt so bad. I was like, I just wanna get this guy's phone number and call him and be like, bro, you're good. Like, because here's what happens. What we do, our inclination as human beings, is we talk about Jesus like he's a person, but when it comes down to it, we actually and functionally live like we are being saved by religion and the formula, not by Jesus who's a person. It's a difference. I'm like, guys, Jesus speaks English. He knows what you meant. <laughs> like, 
He's good. It's really okay. I promise you. He looks not at the outward appearance, but at the heart. And we're not saved by religion. According to the gospel, we're saved by a person, and his name is Jesus. And I'm reading this article, and I'm, I'm thinking about people. And my heart just broke, and, and I realized that we're not that different from Acts chapter 2. Peter preached to a bunch of religious, devout good-hearted, well-intentioned. I mean, let's be clear. These are the ones who traveled from all over the known world to make it to Jerusalem. These guys are in. This is, these are not bad-hearted people. I'm reading about this clergy member. I'm thinking about us, and I'm thinking about people in the room that online this morning. There are good, genuine, well-meaning hearts that have stopped short of the liberating truth of the gospel. Because according to the Bible, it's not good or bad people. That's not the category that God uses. The category that God uses and the reality of our souls, I'm talking spiritual here, is that it's not good or bad people. There's only two categories, dead or alive. You can be as good a dead person as you want to be. Guess what you still are? Dead. And you could be a real jacked up alive person on the process and the journey, hashtag sanctification, but guess what you are? Alive. And God wants us to be fully alive. It's a desire of his heart. It's why Jesus came to give life and life abundantly. And the good news of the gospel is this, that it is his work, that it is his power, that it is his grace, that it is his goodness, and that it is his proficiency. Maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're in the room, maybe you're watching online and and you find yourself in the story, you, maybe you are, you're, you're devout, you're genuine, you're, you mean it. Over the course of this pandemic, it's broken you down to your most raw form. And you're like, man, I got to get back to church or I got to start going to church for the first time. And you're experiencing some degree of life. The people here, you're like, man, these people really care about me. And they do because they're awesome. You're like, this is so great. And I'm praying that if you are in that spot and yet the, the message of the gospel still has not fully penetrated your heart, I am praying that it would today just like for Peter's audience in Acts 2. Great awakenings, they're gospel-centered. They point people to Jesus and they liberate us from our penchant towards religion. So that's who the gospel is for. Question number two, what is the gospel? Turn to your neighbor and ask him, what is it? So what is it? Okay, that's who it's for. It's for people, everybody, including religious people, but what is the gospel? I like telling stories about my son, Liam, and he likes hearing when he hears stories about himself. So if you're watching online, son, I love you. You're on TV now, okay? My son, Liam, is in our kids program here at Greenhouse, and if you're a parent who has kids and you have not taken them over there, man, you're missing out. The kids program is amazing. Any parents can amen and attest to that. Andrea and that team do a fantastic job. She reminds me all the time, Pastor John, we're making disciples. We're not just babysitting over there. I'm like, amen, Andrea. And so, um, but, but, you know, my, my son is still uh, learning the, the, the spirituality and, and the Bible, and uh, my son is also blessed with an incredible mom named Nancy and uh, and so I overheard an interaction between my son and my wife, Nancy, which was awesome. 
they were talking about what he had learned in kids' church, and they were talking about Jesus, and they were talking about identity, and they were going through these different things, and, and sort of who you are. And so Nancy was like, she, she, she got all excited, she's like, this is my moment. And so she's like, Liam, you know, John 3, 16, you guys familiar with the verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life, right? It's amazing, hope stirring. And she's like, Liam, she, they're talking about this and Liam's listening intently. And she's like, Liam, do you know who God's son is? You guys know the answer to that, right? Jesus. Well, Liam looks up all proud. He says, uh-huh, I am. And my first inclination was to be like, yeah, come on, boy. You do not lack for spiritual confidence. And my second one was like, Lord, you know his heart. Please don't let the lightning strike with a sacrilege, right? That's hashtag goals, pastoral, son of the pastor, uh, creating sacrilegious comments. But, but the reality was, you know, he got the idea of, I am a son of God. Father Abraham had many sons, right? He was all on the Father Abraham thing, but didn't quite get the John 3.16 thing. Um, he'll get there, though. But spiritual matters, they can be confusing for, for not just Liam, okay? Can we be honest? Spiritual matters can be a little confusing for all of us. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Peter knew this about humanity. He knew this about spirituality. And so Peter, in, in this short sermon, chalks it full of repetition. He says one thing over and over again, multiple times in this short little sermon. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and raised from the dead. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and raised from the dead. Over and over and over. He actually says that if you look three times in this short little sermonette. Jesus, crucified, raised from the dead. And then the last time he adds, and exalted as Lord. And by the way, Peter is not alone here. This same theme is echoed throughout the totality of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says it like this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, of the evangel, of the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, there it is, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. He says, here it is, this is the, the gospel that I am not ashamed about. Peter preached this gospel, Paul preached this gospel, Jesus crucified, raised, exalted, and Lord. Jesus crucified, raised, exalted, and Lord. That is the irreducible minimum. The gospel is so robust and rich, it can take a lifetime to explore. It's not just a door you enter, it's a hallway you walk through. But at its irreducible minimum, Peter goes over and over and over. Three times in this short verse, Jesus crucified, raised, exalted, and Lord. The who of the gospel is all peoples. Who needs the gospel? It's good news to all peoples, even devout and religious ones. The what of the gospel is Jesus crucified, raised, exalted, and Lord. Point number three is the how of the gospel. How does this gospel actually work? Look at Acts 2 again, verse 36. Peter says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. 
Now, when the people heard this, they were cut to the hearts, verse 37, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, what? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. How does this gospel work? It works by faith when you respond. It works by faith when you respond. Now, the biblical response that we see here in Acts and we see over and over and over and over again throughout Acts and the rest of the New Testament are these two words, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Next week, we're gonna hit on this in a major way and sort of dedicate some of the, really the, th- the whole thrust of the service to this, which I'm very excited about. But briefly, let me get us on the same page. This word repent, how many of you heard this word repent before? Maybe you've heard it screamed at you. Maybe you've heard it with an ah at the end. Repent, ah, repent, ah means it's, I don't know where that came from. Still surprise myself sometimes. The word repent comes from the Greek metanoia. Everybody say metanoia. You learn some Greek, so cultured. It, It represents a changing of the mind. That word literally means a changing of the mind. What the word repent means is that you change your mind. Like you, if you had been eating Moe's and then realized that the promised land was found and it was called Chipotle, you change your mind. Although I think Chipotle has just kind of slid over time. Anybody else? Like it, it does, it's not the same as, come on, somebody. That's You're like, I didn't say amen to anything else, but man, mm, come on, pastor. I'll take it. Metanoia is a changing of the minds. It says, you know what? I used to think this way about things. I used to ride this way in my life. I used to be the CEO, the director of the script. I used to think this way, but now I think that way. I changed my mind. And and what happens with that is that it eventually precipitates a change of action as well. Being baptized is actually not a new thing. It's not a a brand new invention of Jesus and the Christians. It was actually a Jewish thing way before it became a follower of Jesus thing. Baptism is all about surrender and authority. Baptism is all about surrender and authority. There were different reasons that someone would be baptized in the ancient world, but the primary principle of baptism is about surrender and authority. You've got a new leader, you've got a new rabbi, you've got a new teacher, you've got a new CEO in your life, if you will. This is baptism. Now, here is the principal way that religion works, and it's subtle, or that the gospel works. It's subtle, but it's fundamentally different from religion. Religion works from the outside in. Track with me here. Here's how religion works. Religion has rules, subsets, and standards, and it says, if you want to be a part of us, you've got to get this stuff down pat. Language of religion sounds like this. Once I get my life together, then I'll. Once I get my act together, then I'll. Once I can clean myself up, then God will. This is the language of religion. It presupposes our own human innate goodness and potency to change what's wrong on the inside. Are you tracking with me? The problem is it doesn't work. And so the byproduct of religion is a consistent sense of shame and inadequacy because you can't fix what's wrong with you. Because if you could, you would have fixed it already. Spouses, don't amen that right now, okay? That's not a spot to amen. Religion works from the outside in. The gospel, flip the script, works from the inside out. 
What the gospel says is I can't fix and change the things that are wrong with me in my own power or ability. I can't fix what's on the inside. And so we, we respond in repentance, metanoia, and a transformation begins on the inside, which First John says, if it's legit, if it's the grace of God, it eventually but inevitably changes things on the outside. Do you see the difference in those two things? They look similar from an, at a cursory glance and at a quick snapshot from the outside, but they are fundamentally different in nature. The byproduct of the gospel is this. I am loved and accepted for the mess that I am. And that kindness and that grace is what precipitates, fueled by love, a transformation of heart and eventually a transformation of life as well. For so many of us in this room, and for myself included, I mean, for sure, this, this is our story. We're here, we, we serve, we plug in, we give, we sit here in this chilly auditorium, and we're like, even though if it's too hot, then we can play as hot, you know, it's like, we can't find a temperature we like. But we sit in here and we're like, man, I, I, I've been transformed by the love and the grace of Jesus. I've been following Jesus now for almost 20 years, and and I deliberately and sometimes am reminded by others of who I used to be. And I'm, I'm not perfect. The Lord knows, my mom knows, my wife knows, and many of y'all know. But man, I'm not who I used to be. I, I think about that, and for so many of our story, we're like, man, I'm, I'm not who I was, and I'm not yet who I'm going to be, but man, I, I'm, I, am, I have been changed. I have been transformed. It's the power of God to salvation. I'm a fundamentally different person now from before the gospel took root in my heart. And if you don't believe me, you can ask my mom. Mom, is that true? Uh, well, you didn't mean to be so emphatic about it. You could just said yes, absolutely. Praise the Lord. That's great. That's good, mom. Thank you so much. Uh, point number four, let's move on. How does the gospel work? For, point number four, when? When does the gospel kick in? Okay, I, I hear you, Pastor John. I, I see the difference between gospel and religion. It's not the good advice of what we should do but can't. It's the good news of what he did and invites us into. I get it. So when do we respond? Look at how Peter wraps up his sermon. Verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Here's what Peter did not say. Sorry, guys, there's nothing you can do. Here's what Peter did not say. If you come and join my 12-week class, then I'll let you know. What, here's what Peter did not say. For three easy payments of $19.99, you can find your blessing. Here's what Peter did not say. I'm sorry, I don't really have answers for you. Come back next week and I'll think about something figure it out. What did Peter say? He said, repent and be baptized. What Peter said is actually what God has always said when people are presented with their situation in light of God and his grace and his goodness. Look at it in Joshua 24. Joshua is speaking to the people. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, check this, then choose for yourselves when? This day, today. Choose for yourselves this day who you, whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living in. But as for me and my household, 
we will serve the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6, you fast forward to the New Testament, Paul echoes this sentiment and idea. He says, as God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. And now, or today, is the day of salvation. When this gospel message goes forth, the, the, the overwhelming theme of scripture is when do you respond to the good news? When do you respond to the evangel? When do you respond to the gospel? You know when? As soon as you can. Today, today is the day of salvation. Choose you today whom you will serve. As we go through this series, man, I've been so stirred reading about and, and listening to these stories of awakening that God has done in, in our modern day. I was reading this week about the Asbury Revival in Kentucky in 1970. Anybody ever heard of that before? All right, I'll put us on the same page. The Asbury Revival, it was basically a Asbury College. It was a college that, that had a, a, it was like a Christian college, basically. And they were just kind of doing their thing. And, and they had a chapel service one morning. And all of a sudden, the speaker was like, you know what? I don't know if he didn't prepare his notes, to be quite honest. You know, preachers do things. And so, but he was like, you know what? I'm, I'm not supposed to preach. I'm just going to have someone share a testimony. And this, this student unplanned, a senior in this college, stood up and basically said, hey, I'm a senior I've wasted my entire college years and I'm ready to just go all in for Jesus. And I just need, I've just been so convicted. I wanna trust him. And if you wanna join me, why don't you come to the front? They had these like old school altar things up there you would kneel on and, he's, and he just walked off stage. And then a few students joined him. And then a few more joined him. And then God's presence showed up. There's a true story. And then God began to move and, and people kept meeting this, this chapel they would have every single week. I mean, it was, it was just a thing that they did. They would have multiple chapels a week. This chapel, it, it extended and they canceled lunch because God began to move. Then eventually they canceled classes for the entire day. And they finally ended up canceling all classes for an entire week. I listened to like a little documentary. You can find it on YouTube if you look up like Asbury Revival or Asbury Awakening. But some of the students shared, they're, you know, they're later in life now. And they're like, man, we would zip off to our dorms to shower and come right back. Like we wouldn't eat. We could could not get back quick enough to be in the presence of God. They ended up doing about 10 to 12 altar calls per day. People started coming in from all around the nation and there was this urgency that went with this message. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I found it so interesting because it was at a Christian college preaching to religious, devout, good-hearted people who needed to respond and go all in. When do we respond to the gospel? It's, it's biblically full of urgency. It's the same that Peter preached, today is the day. You respond as soon as you can. I'll close it with this story and then we'll, we'll close out in response and we'll, we'll sing and respond to the love of God. I came across this week the story of D.L. Moody in Chicago. Anybody familiar with D.L. Moody? He was a, a preacher, a pastor. And uh, in 1871, they had a Sunday evening prayer meeting where God really began to move. And, and he was talking about exactly this. He was talking about the gospel. He was talking about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. And he said, as he began to preach, people just spontaneously began to weep all over the auditorium. And it got to this moment where he could feel it. He's like, man, God was moving and it was ripe. And he, and he said, I don't know why I did this, but I just like, he's like, you know what? I don't even want anybody to respond today. I want you to go home for the next week and think about it. And then next week when you come back, you can decide if you want to follow Jesus. But what he did not know is that very night, this is again a true story, the great Chicago fire would sweep throughout the city 
Within the Chicago fire that very evening, 3.3 square miles and over 100,000 homes would be destroyed. Hundreds died. D.L. Moody, I read a, a transcript from him. He said, many of the people that were in the pews that evening did not make it to see the next morning because they died in the fires. Tens of thousands more had to move and leave. He never had a chance to interact with them again. And this is what he said. He said, after that experience, I've been haunted. And I'll never wait again to give someone a chance to respond. He said, procrastinating the right thing rarely prepares you to do the right thing. Hence the call is to choose you this day. Every week I, I, I do sermon prep, or most weeks, with, with Pastor Mike in Gainesville, and we collaborate together. And, and all week long, I said, Mike, I, I can't shake this feeling that, that we're supposed to, like Peter in Acts 2, like we're supposed to give a moment and an opportunity for response. And I'm praying we don't have a crazy fire or hurricane or tsunami or who knows how many other pandemics we can take in the midst of this you know, crazy season. Leonard Ravenhill said, the opportunity of a lifetime must be seized in the lifetime of the opportunity. And what D.L. Moody experienced in an extremely tragic way is what we all know is true in real life. It's what James said, our life is merely a vapor. It's here one moment, it seems so robust, it seems so permanent, it seems so present in the moment, and then it's gone. And all of a sudden we find ourselves in front of eternity and, and significantly on my heart all week long that I could not shake, friends, is that for somebody or somebody's, and maybe you're watching online, maybe you're here in the room, today is your day. I realize that in this season, a lot of people that used to be in and around have sort of drifted from Jesus. And on the flip side of things, a lot of people that are like, oh, I'm fine, I don't really need God, I don't really need religion, have begun responding in droves. And maybe you're here this morning, maybe you're here online, and you've been coming, you're, you're, you're in, you're devout. You're like these characters in Acts 2, you're, you're, you're committed, you're here, but you've stopped at the dividing line of religion and you've stopped at, I'm gonna be a committed churchgoer, that's not enough. I'm gonna be a devout religious person. Pastor John, I'm doing all the things. The things are not what saves you. It's a full-on surrender and commitment to Jesus that rescues you. And if you have not made that decision, today is the day. And this is your moment. Why, because God's mad at me? No, because he loves you. And the only way that the life and life abundantly is unlocked by the kindness and the mercy of God is by a wholehearted surrender. Peter preached this message in Acts 2 with great urgency because he had a love for the people he was speaking to and he understood the great love of God that had been poured out through Jesus for them. And in a similar vein, if you're here and, and like Peter's audience, you, you're devout, you're genuine, you're religious, but, but you're not alive because you've never fully surrendered. This is your moment. And the good news is you can do it today. Your efforts aren't enough. Your, your religious zeal is not enough. Your, your good works and genuine pursuit of doing the right thing are not enough to earn you the right standing with God that God desires for you, which is why he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that no one could live, to die the death that we deserved so you can have right standing with God. You need the grace of God, the evangel, the good news of the gospel. But it's only for the humble willing to admit their needs. Why don't you join me as we pray? You can just bow your head and, 
and close your eyes. And Lord, I'm asking right now that by your spirit, you would move. Lord, the reality is this is not something that I can convince someone to see, Lord. We all have to come to a point personally by the power of your spirit where we recognize our need, where we see that, that we've come to a certain extent in our devotion, a certain extent in being devoted and devout. But what we need to do is fully surrender to make you Lord, to make you Savior, to make you leader of our lives. Lord, would you do that work by your spirit right now? If you're here this morning, watch online or, or here in the room and you, you know you need to fully respond to the gospel. Like Peter, you need to make him Jesus' death and resurrection, that he's Savior and Lord. Here's what these terms mean. Savior means you acknowledge your need to be rescued from what? From sin. Not just from the sin actions that you commit throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the months, but from the ultimate bondage to sin that the Bible tells us every single human being has. The gospel liberates us from sin and liberates us from our pride, from all the things that we endeavor to change in our own efforts and we can't seem to do. If you need to respond and place your trust fully in Jesus and respond to the kindness of God, this evangel, this good news, I wanna give you an opportunity to do it right now. If that's you in the room or online, you can do the same thing. I just want you to raise your hand up right now. Say, Pastor John, that's me. I need to respond. I need to respond. Like, what do I do? Wherever you're at, you, you just tell him. There's no magic formula. It's something along the lines of, Jesus, I'm listening. You've got my heart. Change me. Forgive me. Help me. I want to follow you. Teach me to follow you. Maybe you're here this morning and, and it's time to commit or or recommit your heart and life to this gospel, to live in light of the gospel, to share the gospel with others, to preach the good news of the gospel wherever you go and whenever you can, to commit yourself afresh to the message of this great awakening. Start it today. It's why we're still on this planet, as ambassadors of this good news gospel. Lord, would you give us the courage and the boldness to do just that? Why don't you stand to your feet? And if I can get our prayer partners up here to line the front, we're gonna close in a final chorus, just singing back songs of worship to God. But if you need to respond, if you realize, man, John, I'm here and I, and I really mean it. And, and I have the sense in this room that there's a lot of, you're, you're, you're good hearted. I'm not questioning your heart or your motives or where you're at, but you know it's a time to surrender fully to Jesus. Or if you just need prayer for anything in your life, as soon as we start to sing, you're welcome to come forward. Let's close out and worship together.